This is a Stimulus Network podcast. The Cosmic Shed. Hello and welcome to the Cosmic Shed. It's May the 4th. It's Star Wars Day. I'm Andrew and today's episode is a conversation with Dr. Rebecca Harrison, a lecturer in theatre, film and television studies at the University of Glasgow and the author of a forthcoming book for the BFI on The Empire Strikes Back. Rebecca is a film critic writing for a number of publications and websites and a fan of all things Star Wars and has recently been doing an awful lot of research into an awful lot of aspects of the Star Wars franchise. So here is Rebecca Harrison. It started off that I was going to write just a one-off article about um, archives in the uh, in the franchise, um, and particularly after I saw Rogue One, and Jin, of course, in that film, is part of the archive herself and is given the file name Stardust, which is what she's looking for when she gets into the Imperial archive. And so, as because I'm a film historian and spend lots and lots of time thinking about archives in this kind of theoretical way, I thought it would be fun to look at that in Star Wars, because it's something I've been into since I was a kid. I've been a huge fan of Star Wars since I was tiny and fell in love with the Ewoks, um, watching those cartoons endlessly as a child. Um, But yeah, it kind of snowballed from there. So I started thinking about that one film and then thought actually history and, and archives and how people record the past is actually kind of present in all of the films. And then from there, I started rewatching them, and then it's just kind of spiralled into this kind of never-ending bigger project. Okay, so it's it's actually your job to look into Star Wars at the moment, is that right? It is, yes, yeah, it's part of my job to look at Star Wars. I'm a lecturer, so I'm kind of teaching mostly film history and film curation. So I kind of run a master's program where I get students to think about how to do film programming, and the sort of it's all quite kind of ethics based so we think a lot about gatekeeping and power and how you get different films to different audiences that okay. kind of stuff I did, I, so does star wars come up a lot in lectures no surprisingly not actually um i've managed to shoehorn it onto the beginning of one course that i teach the undergraduates right and i might put it onto something new that i'm doing next year but actually no it doesn't it doesn't really feature that much in my teaching you've been writing a book for the BFI on, for the 40th anniversary of uh, The Empire Strikes Back. That's been my life, actually, for the past. I think maybe maybe I actually have Empire Strikes Back fatigue at this point. Okay. Um, so uh, for the last, I mean, it's been about 18 months that I've been working with that project. Uh, so I was approached by the BFI uh, and commissioned to write this book, which is part of their BFI, the film classic series the kind of small pocketbooks. Um, and yeah, so I spent about a year researching it, wrote it up just before Christmas, and that should be out in October, I think. Cool. What's come out of that research that's surprised you at all? Anything? Yeah, I think the the main thing for me was to go beyond looking at the film. So a lot of people write about Star Wars in terms of the fans which is really important, but that kind of dominates particularly sort of academic writing about the franchise, um, is thinking about 
fans and fans in particular now rather than fans at the beginning um, and textual analysis of the film so thinking about you know what themes come out of it or how is it shot the production history is actually a big thing with Star Wars as well um, because of the the shift in technology that was happening when the original trilogy was being filmed so I did think about that because that's kind of part of the process of writing one of those BFI books but I wanted to get into the archive and really position Star Wars as something historical because you know it's 40 years ago that's four decades um, and for a lot of people they won't know the history of like what was happening at that moment in time how the film fits into a historical context that's bigger than just the film industry so I was thinking about um, everything from uh, trade unionism in the UK to LGBT rights to um, the kind of military industrial complex and what was going on with the Cold War at the time and all of these things for me were kind of informing how I was watching the film which I you know did multiple times over the last year um, so that was that was the approach and I think the thing that surprised me the most I went to the Margaret Herrick Library in LA um, was fortunate enough to go there and was looking through studio documents um, about the film. There's actually not a huge amount in the public domain that's kind of archival about Star Wars because it's tightly kind of controlled and owned and guarded. I mean, that stuff I think is still actually with George Lucas. That hasn't even gone to Disney. Really? Um, so, I mean, there's a number of kind of different levels of gatekeeping where you just can't get access to much stuff. Although Lucasfilm, I think, are, as a company, becoming a bit more open to, to connections with academics and, and researchers. Um, I was, so I was looking in the 20th Century Fox uh, film, like they were the film's distributors. So I was looking at some of their files and the market research that they'd done, testing what they thought audiences would think of the film before it was released. So it was about them tweaking their marketing materials and how they were going to put the film out and what the strategy was. And just seeing, because, you know, there's this, a sort of a certain section of Star Wars fandom and it doesn't help. I mean, the, the media and the press and kind of film criticism plays up to this and perpetuates it, that Star Wars is for boys or that it used to be put out just for men and for male audiences. And that's who it was targeting. And the fact that women liked it was actually incidental. But when you go back to those documents, I mean, it's just, I mean, it's, you know, it's not true. It's kind of as if any major film studio would put a film out yeah, yeah. for like one specific gender when it's a blockbuster and, and ignore all of that money that they could potentially be making. But yeah, seeing it on the page and seeing how much the studio was invested in ensuring that female audiences or, you know, people that were presenting as women were interested in the film in multiple different ways. I mean, there's a kind of big, you know, let's play up the romance angle. Let's make sure that the posters reflect that there is a kind of love story. But actually the comments from the women being interviewed, you know, and they had a 50-50 gender ratio in every single um, kind of test focus group that they used. Okay. So it was clearly like from the beginning, it, they were keen to make sure that women felt part of the Star Wars fandom and it was set up to be kind of maybe not, there wasn't maybe gender parity in terms of who whose voices were being listened to, 
but that was definitely something for me that was like good yes this is here yeah. I was a little bit surprised actually to see how much effort they put into into doing that it does, I mean that does surprise me because I, I mean just looking at your pinned tweet it as a general rule um the percentage of time that women spend on screen is getting generally more as time goes on right generally i mean yes and no i think the i haven't got the stats up in front of me but i have just been working on them because i've just been okay. uh looking to see what the percentage of screen time for women is in the the rise of skywalker the most recent star wars episode um yeah i mean generally speaking the it gets a bit better especially when you get to the disney cycle of star wars films but there's not really that much consistency in the first two trilogies and it actually if anything it kind of disproves the idea that things get more progressive as time goes on um because the a new hope has something like 15 percent um of screen time for women i mean it's basically just princess leia in that film yeah. there aren't i don't think off the top of my head i don't think there are any other women characters in it yeah um but then you skip to the prequels. I think then the prequels kind of go in a in almost reverse order. So the Re Revenge of the Sith is actually the next worst one. But the prequels go backwards. So the Empire Strikes Back and uh, Return of the Jedi are better for representation than the films that came out in the 90s and early 2000s. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. But... Last so Jedi, it was an improvement again, right? Yeah, so then you get to the Disney films from 2015 onwards. They don't go in a kind of straight line either, but um, because I think Solo is like a big, kind of crashes the numbers back down again. Hmm. Um, on I think that's about 23%. But the other films actually do get kind of steadily better. The Last Jedi was, I think, 30, no, 43%, which was massive improvement on 15 percent if you yes, listen them from beginning to end yeah. um but the uh so i'm actually the kind of the big announcement with the rise of skywalker which i found really fascinating because so many people decried this film i, th I think kind of unfairly actually i think this film has been maligned in a number of ways for a few different reasons um a lot of people have kind of said the rise of skywalker was a step backwards that it ruined the representation of of its female characters that it did a disservice to them it actually has the highest proportion of screen time for the female characters of all the films really yes yeah it's the first star wars film that's crossed the threshold of 50 50 kind of gender oh. parity i think well, it's actually 50 50.9 percent of the screen time is devoted to its female characters wow sure. right so it's is there, do you have any sense of whether there is a, a group of people, um, a, a way of thinking in uh, Disney where they're actually thinking about this and thinking about percentages and making the films in that way? Do you know what, I actually, the, because I mean, the thing, I, doing the numbers is, is kind of one, one element of thinking about this. And I think it's really important not to get too caught up in the stats. And often something I've noticed is that you have to do the data because that's the sort of lot, the organizing logic of patriarchy and capitalism and, and all these things is, well, okay, where are the numbers? Prove it. If you're saying the representation of the female characters isn't good enough, 
well, okay, give me the numbers. So mm. you do the numbers, but the numbers don't really tell you the whole story. And it, what it feels like with The Rise of Skywalker is that they've said, well, if we hit 50%, that's the problem solved. So what happens to the women within the film and what happens to the female characters isn't necessarily that progressive. And most of it is taken up with uh, Rey, the central character, the kind of female Jedi in the series. Most of that is her. And they've kind of reduced the amount of work that the other female characters do within the narrative, mm. kind of at her expense. Um, or rather, it's the other way around. She's, she gets more time at their expense. Yeah. So yeah, it does feel a little bit like Disney are playing a numbers game. Right. And it's the kind of it, it's a bit of a trick that they're playing on people, I think. Okay. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think that the problem is far from solved. I think they still need to do a lot of work to improve how the storytelling works and to think more about, I mean, representation for everyone. I mean, the representation of women of color is still appalling. I think that's, even in this film, again, it's the highest scoring film in the franchise, but it's 7.6% or something, you know, that's, you know, less than 10% of the film for women of color. Yeah. Is there any, study that's kind of looked at Star Wars as opposed to other science fiction? Not that I'm aware of. I mean, there are academics who have done kind of quite general, broad science fiction studies in which they've talked about Star Wars and you know other franchises. Um, mm. There's a brilliant book called, um, I think it's called Black Space, and it's by Adelie Funama, which looks very particularly at the representation of black characters or the characters played by black actors and actresses in science fiction. And, and Star Wars kind of sits within that, kind of within a narrative about science fiction more broadly. Mm. Um, and know, that's brilliant. But... Do, you, do you know where it, where, like how it compares? Is it, is it worse? Is it better? Because I sort of feel like, I, you know, to bring in the other one, Star Trek and Star Wars were kind of, um, from what you said about the way they were thinking about, at least in terms of audiences, um, were thinking more like ahead of their time when they were making it. But is that true or is that just a story that we're told? No, I mean, I think that that is the kind of the narrative that, that holds up um, in any of the kind of academic or when I've read you know, work by journalists who have been writing interesting things about this as well. Yeah, I think Star Trek is generally perceived as being more progressive. And yeah, that is the obvious comparison, is the one that most people tend to make. Um, Yeah, I think on everything from race to disability to LGBT representation, it tends to be better in Star Trek. Okay. Yeah. I think you mean Star Wars is a fairly conservative franchise. Yeah. In lots of different ways. Even strange weirdly, people have made the argument it's actually quite as conservative aesthetically, despite the fact that it's always been kind of pushing the boundaries of of the digital. Hey, that's really quite interesting. Because I always think that it must be very hard if you are right wing in your thinking to watch star wars and go 
yeah, I like this. I get the message. I don't know how, how as a right-wing person, you watch Star Wars and go, unless you side with the, the First Order or the Empire, then you kind of, you can't look at the story of Luke or Rey and think, okay, this is, this is the right-wing narrative. Can you? Well, I mean, I think there's a, I think there is a way of doing that. And it, I think it depends on how you see yourself in relation to state infrastructures and, and politics, because I think you can perhaps watch those films. And if you see the left as being this kind of sweeping force, that's going to take away everything you love and destroy, you know, everything you hold dear with its, the kind of, I guess the, the idea of like the left as the nanny state. Yeah. And actually being quite controlling and, you know, communism wants to tell you that you can only eat these things or you can only have this much or you can only do things in a very kind of organised way that's determined by the state. Then perhaps, and I think perhaps people on the right might like to see themselves as the freedom fighters fighting the tyranny of... But it is funny because, I mean, by all accounts, George Lucas was just a bit of a kind of hippie and maybe not super left-wing or maybe not like particularly progressive by to the kind of the way that we use that word now but definitely quite liberal yeah i think so. and i think you know and obviously the films are written with the empire being a kind of fascist kind of right-wing entity mm. but yeah i think i think there is definitely scope within those films for people to 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 flip it yes which they will do right i mean that's a thing that people do. So when you were talking about Empire Strikes Back, you said that it, looking at it in the kind of LGBT rights arena at that time, I don't, tell me about that. What's that got to do with Empire Strikes Back? The way that I've been thinking about this has been, I kind of sort of switch a bit between film history and film theory and then kind of marrying the two back up in a kind of weird space in the middle, which I know frustrates some academics who are either very empirical or very theoretical, um, but it's just the way my mind works. Um, I don't like limits, <laughs> I refuse to be constrained. Um, so I've been, um, I mean, so, so it was 1980, so it's prior to the, to the AIDS crisis, um, which is the kind of defining narrative about LGBT history or, or kind of um, experiences in the, in the 1980s. Um, but the way I've been thinking about it is there's a a brilliant book called Queer Phenomenology by uh, Sarah Ahmed, in which she talks about, she thinks about what it means to be queer, or rather what it means to be not straight. So she's thinking about being not straight as being framed as like deviating from, you know, from point A to point B, there's a straight line and that's kind of straight, heteronormative, culture identity and then there's this other kind of wonky circuitous non-straight deviating way of getting from a to b and that's what queer culture is or that's what queer identity might be thought of of in comparison to to straightness so that was something i'd read you know kind of quite a long time ago in, in thinking about other projects but watching The Empire Strikes Back, it's really, it becomes really clear that everything isn't straight in that film. Everything is wonky. And when you compare it to A New Hope, which has this very 
traditional proscenium arch style framing, the camera moves on X and Y axes. It moves from left to right, it moves up and down. There are pans and tilts. That's how it moves. It's quite static. The characters move often within the frame, but the frame itself is still. So it really looks, it looks like a, a kind of classically shot movie. The Empire Strikes Back is bonkers, actually, <laughs> like in the way that the, in its framing, everything is moving all the time. Um, and I think, um, I can't remember if it's Paul Hirsch, who was the editor, or Peter Sosicki, who was the, the cinematographer. One of them, in an interview at the time, even says, you know, the camera does move around a lot more, um, which when you're doing those kind of special effects is a bold move, actually. When you're not, you know, you're kind of pushing the envelope on the technical effects that you're using, and then your camera is constantly moving around. But everything is always tilted at an angle. So everything is canted within the frame, which means everything's kind of along these diagonals, or it's an extreme high angle or an extreme low angle. So the there's this kind of visual anxiety to the film. Yeah. Or, you know, that like one of my favorite moments in The Empire Strikes Back is as the Millennium Falcon goes into the, the asteroid field. And it really, it feels like you're in a simulation with the cameras just kind of like bouncing around and it's swooping. And then there's these kind of moments where it, it sort of takes off almost from underneath you and you're positioned in the cockpit behind the characters as if you're standing in there with them. Um, and I think, I think that might have been, or well, this testing my memory because I was very young, but I think that's the basis of the, the Star Tours Disney ride that used to be at Florida. Yeah. I'm not sure maybe it's still there or not, but um, so it really does feel like you're in this kind of simulated moving ride. Um, so, but it was kind of connecting up those, like the actual, the kind of materiality of what's there in the film and what that might mean or how we might read it as a queer reading. Um, this film, which is, um, I mean, it's not something I've had space to talk about in the book, but I have written about, um, which will be out elsewhere, I think later in the month, um, about how the film is also kind of, comes out of this tradition of camp as well. Um, lots of the, lots of the crew working on the film and the creative talent had just come off of projects with, for example, Ken Russell. So a couple of people had worked on uh, Listomania and The Devils. Um, there are kind of aesthetic connections between The Empire Strikes Back and um, films like The Red Shoes, the Paolo Pressburger kind of ballet film. Um, Billy D. Williams, of course, had just worked on Mahogany with um, Diana Ross which is this kind of big camp fashion film. Um, Irving Kirshner as well, the director, had just, his previous film was The Eyes of Laura Mars, which again is like a super campy um, fashion thriller melodrama. Mm. So I think it's kind of, I, the film actually feels like it's rooted in those traditions and that hasn't really been talked about. Um, and that because we think about it so much as science fiction or adventure, or the kind of space opera, somehow those other influences on it are overlooked. That's fascinating. And 
not for the first time in my life, made me want to go and watch The Empire Strikes Back again with fresh eyes. So I'll do that. I'd have to say, you say you maybe have kind of a bit tired of it, but you don't speak as though you've tired of it at all. There's uh, clearly a lot of love for the film when you talk about it. Yeah, I actually, I even rewatched it a couple of weekends ago and I do still really enjoy it. It's the, I, but I, I guess I feel like I maybe need to not watch it for so that I can go back to it with fresh eyes. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Fair I think enough. that's probably more the case than any any fatigue with it. Yeah, fair enough. If someone asks me, because they do quite regularly, someone asks me, what's your favourite Star Wars film? And it is, generally speaking, unless I've just watched Attack of the Clones, it is the most recent film that I've watched. Do you have one that kind of sticks out? It's like, yeah, this is, this is if tomorrow is May the 4th, or when people can first listen to this episode is May the 4th, if you were going to watch a Star Wars film, which one would you put on tomorrow? Hmm. I mean, The Empire Strikes Back is my is my kind of go to favorite. That's it. I know that, but that's also bound up in a lot of childhood nostalgia, and you know, sharing watching the films with my dad, and it's my dad's favorite film of all of them. It's the one I'm most familiar with, but I have a soft spot for Rogue One, which yeah. I think is by far the best of the most recent Disney films. Yeah, yeah. Um, I know that from a, a kind of an art film, film criticism perspective, everyone usually says it's The Last Jedi. But actually, I think, I think Rogue One is, probably has the edge, actually. I think it worked really, really well as a, as a war film, which I think, I think for me, it's the only Star Wars film that really gets at the nature of war and loss and grief and what it means to lose people in battle. Yeah. I love, I mean, I, I love most of them, to be honest, but I do love Rogue One. Um, I, I don't think I'm surprised by that at all, to be honest. I think that's that's totally what I would have thought with Last Jedi somewhere in there as well. So, um, Rise of Skywalker, the, the, the honest truth is that my dad died at on Christmas Eve. Right? Oh, God, I'm sorry to hear so, that. Oh, thanks. In the, in the middle of kind of the rise of Skywalker, right? And if, if Star Wars is anything, it's escapism. Yeah. And so I buried myself in multiple screenings on the biggest screens that I could find of the rise of Skywalker. And as a piece of Star Wars escapism, I found no fault in it. I loved it. And I, I, I did too. I loved it. <laughs> okay, <laughs> like... great. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know, but it, it, I, as I've tried really hard not to listen to any of the criticism of it, because criticism, I, I'm, I'm a terrible person, basically, and criticism of something that I love tempers my love of it. And I don't want to temper my love of mm. Star Wars particularly and The Rise of Skywalker particularly, but I'll ask the question. So it's, I'll ask the question because you said you love it too, so it's fine. What, what's the problem with it? Why is it, why is it not okay? Well, this is, okay, this is a, a bit of a can of worms question. Um, I... Just take one of the worms out and then... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, I have to say up front, I, I loved the film. I also had been having a kind of challenging time in my personal life. We had just had the election and the result of the election had been 
overwhelming in a number of ways and upsetting and disappointing. And that film came out and I went to, I saw it at the press screening because I was reviewing it. Nice. And I, I escaped, everything went away for a couple of hours. Although actually I say that it didn't. I think it offered for me a way of feeling a bit more hopeful again, actually. Um, I was surprised because I, you know, being in that screening, hearing the response of many of the people in the audience at different moments. As the film was on, you know, people were gasping, laughing at different moments, cheering at certain points. And then when I read the reviews out the next day, it was like people had had a totally different experience to the one that I felt like I'd been a part of the night before. Interesting. Um, and it's interesting as well how there were certain critics who did enjoy the film. Um, I think one notable one, so I wrote a review for Sight and Sound, which was largely positive. Um, I think Mark Commode wrote a sort of fairly positive one for The Guardian. So there were some positives, but the, the narrative seems to be everyone hated this film. Yeah. And no one found anything redeeming in it. There was a, you know, I still see people talking online fan saying this the trilogy stops at eight there are eight <laughs> <Okay>. star wars films. <laughs> yeah, yeah. and i think you know there are valid criticisms of it which i can't ignore even as i enjoy it yeah. um you know i think one of the big problems for people was the way that the film sidelined kelly marie trans character rose okay yeah um who had been you know a fairly a kind of significant part of the last jedi and then in this last film is on screen for about three minutes yeah and has very little to do and she was completely sidelined the problem there is that they seem to have introduced another woman of character um black actress uh naomi aki as jana whose character i loved and has a fairly significant role in the film but they seem to have done that at the at the expense of another woman of color so it's yeah. like there's only room for, for one yeah. rather than having multiple different, different women with different identities who are allowed to contribute to the narrative in kind of meaningful ways. So I think, and that, you know, it just kind of smacks of, of racism. And it's, I mean, there's not really any excuse for it. I know that the filmmakers then put out interviews and tried to say, oh, well, it was difficult for us to include Rose because, but it just compounded it and made it worse. So I think, you know, for reasons like that, there are big problems with the film. Yeah. I think one of the other things is it's kind of set up in relation to or in comparison to The Last Jedi, which I think sometimes gets unfairly praised for its representation of women and people of colour and the intersections thereof because it's got that kind of art house sensibility. People love Ryan Johnson. He got very attacked by kind of quite right wing sort of trolls online, that kind of section of the Star Wars fandom that gets very upset about anything to do with progressive representation. Um, and so it was set up as if it was the opposite of that. Um, but I don't, and I've, I've written about this elsewhere, I, I don't see the film as being 
is different to The Last Jedi. That was always going to happen. You've got two directors with two different styles, sensibilities. To me, I mean, like at the end of the film, all of the white male characters in the franchise are dead. You know, the resistance is led by people who are ethnically not set up as white or who are not white. It's so it's all kind of men of color, women of color, white women. You've got Ray in there as a kind of kind of the predominant figure. But that's it. That's that's what's left at the end. They are the leaders. They're the future. They're taking the galaxy into the kind of post first order world. Yeah. You know, all of the white men are dead. Yeah. None of them are left. They're not leaders. They're not, you know, the, the one white man who was kind of left left alive at the end of the franchise was was kylo ren who dies as ben and then he's kind of forgotten there's you know there's no one's mourning his death it so for me that actually felt like quite a progressive ending to a saga that started out being very white very male and i say it still makes mistakes and it doesn't get everything right but i i felt like that offered like a kind of an alternative imagining of what the future could look like okay and a, a kind of shift in where the power lies that's interesting i but just to, i my reading of the ben thing was that because they were a dyad he and ray sort of combined and then were carried on so he's there yeah and i mean actually that was one of the other big criticisms that a number of people had of the film was the i mean there was the the ray being a palpatine that upset a lot of people. It didn't bother me personally. Um, but the the redemption arc of Kylo Ren to back to being Ben Solo, um, the fact that he was shown to be good again at the end without having to do that much work to to be redeemed. I mean, sure, maybe I but then I spoke to my ten-year-old nephew who you know, at Christmas, we talk about Star Wars films. That's, uh, that's how we bond. Um, and I asked him, his favourite characters always used to be Ray and Finn. Right. And I asked him who his favourite character was now and if that was still the same. Um, and he said, no, Kylo Ren was his favourite character. And I, with all the wisdom of a, a grown-up, <laughs> was concerned about this and thought, oh, that's not good. Like, that... That worries me, actually, that as he's getting older, he's moved away from the more diverse kind of the, the, and the resistance, the good guys to the bad guy. And then I kind of asked him and like pressed him on this a bit more. And he was like, well, you know, I, I really like the fact that he did something wrong and he made a mistake, but he's allowed to like learn from that and then he's good again. And I was like, oh, okay, but you do still, you do still kind of like the the resistance characters, don't you? I mean, who would you be if you had to be one of the characters? And he was like, well, obviously I'd be one of the good guys. Yeah, yeah. And just gave me this look, like, yeah, yeah. What? Why? Like, what, why? like, why would you ask that question? Yeah. So I, I, I guess, you know, these films are important, and I, you know, I, it's my job to to analyze them and to think about them and their kind of cultural significance. So I don't want to underplay what these that what the meaning of these films is, and how it they fit into narratives about who we forgive and who we don't, and patriarchy, and whiteness. I mean, this is really important stuff. At the same time, these are kids' films. 
you know, they're, I mean, they're not just aimed at children, they're aimed at, you know, a very broad demographic of people. But they're films that kids love and enjoy and read in quite different ways to us. And so I think it's, you know, sometimes it's just important to kind of step back a little bit and think, okay, yeah, I, what we see as being incredibly complicated, a 10-year-old might see as, as being actually quite simple. Yeah, I would, yeah, totally. I think, I, th I think that two, two things that kind of shone out of what you've been saying to me, which is one is the hope that Rise of Skywalker gave you. Um, I think there's lines in it like, you know, that's the way that they win by making us feel yeah. like that we're alone. I mean, that's, that's surely from a political point of view at a moment in time that that line's been written. Because the, the, the way I look at the world now, I think what would be really good and the most the easiest way, which is clearly not going to happen, but the easiest way to fix things would be for the bad guys to realise they were wrong and change, right? Mm. And uh, wouldn't that be lovely? Yeah. <laughs> if they suddenly, you know, I don't know, like if they suddenly had some kind of major life event, I don't know, maybe at birth or an illness or something, and then it certainly saw the world in a different way and became better people more empathetic, kinder, mm. less ridiculous. That would be my hope for the future. And um, maybe Star Wars can give us that. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've seen the film three times now. And every time I've seen it, I like weep at the end of the film. Like it's the moment when I think it's Poe is just kind of, is completely defeated. And then looks up and sees that all of the support has arrived and they are all together and they can do this and they can win. That for me, it gets me every time. Like I just start crying and I can't stop. And I think that's like, that's wonderful, but it's also, for me, it's a really sentimental film. And it, you know, again, it got criticized because it plays, it's doing fan service. And I'm like, well, I kind of wanted to do fan service. I'm okay with that. Um, but it's funny as well, like the you know, things that are sentimental, that are a bit kitsch. I mean, also this, the thing about this film is it's really funny. Yeah. And I, it was only on watching it again at home for the first time the other day that I, I thought this is a comedy. Yeah. Like yeah. the timing of the way that the characters interact with each other and there's a knowingness to it. And they, there's a brilliant, I think, you know, Rose is, kind of unfairly maligned in this film and doesn't get enough to do but she has for me like the kind of funniest moment in the film when Oscar Isaac as Poe is kind of saying oh you know Palpatine has returned somehow and she says and we're meant to believe this <laughs> and, you, and you think like she's speaking for everyone in the audience like yeah. the film knows it's ridiculous yeah. the film knows it's camp it, it knows that it's it's kitsch and it's silly and for me like it actually had more of that original Star Wars yeah. spirit than I, you know, I love The Last Jedi. I think it did something kind of interesting and different with the franchise. But that kind of art house, avant garde, like beautiful, kind of deep, rich aesthetic that it has is part of the way that we kind of, it's a very masculinized aesthetic. It's what we appreciate and what we say is good when we put films into the canon of good filmmaking. And the fact that The Rise of Skywalker doesn't do that and goes from this kind of more melodramatic, sentimental, 
you know, kind of emo like big emotion kind of melodrama feel, those tend to be films that we are kind of feminized in our imagination and we overlook and we don't include in film canon. And so for me, there's something a little bit dangerous about saying this film is really good and this film is really bad based on the kind of genres that they're drawing on and yeah. how they're kind of speaking to the audience. I think that's great and put much better than I could ever have put. I just think sentimentality is fine. It's okay. It's a part of life and it's okay to have it in film. It's okay. Yep. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the fact that The Rise of Skywalker does is sentimental without having any romantic subplot. Yeah. You know, there isn't a romance. There isn't a... I mean, it dep I guess it depends how you read Ray and, and Kylo's relationship. And Finn and... And, you know, they're, they're, let's, say, let's say there are romantic tensions. Yeah. Between different sets of characters in the film. But there isn't a, a kind of straightforward romance. There's no Han and Leia. There's no kind of payoff of people getting together as a couple at the end of the film. And it, it kind of, it does sentiment in a, in a different way, which is kind of often based on nostalgia. Yeah. But also, but that, the line that kind of runs through Star Wars, you know, about having hope, about always remaining hopeful. And I think it uses that as the, that for me, at least, that was the thing that make, makes me cry when I watch this film. That's brilliant. Thanks. If people want to read more of your stuff, what's the best place to go? Uh, so I have a, a website, uh, writingonreels.uk and that has a page with links to everything that I've written about Stoles, various recordings and things I've done talking about the film. Um, so yeah, so that's probably the best place to go. When there's some new Star Wars content, can we get you back? Absolutely, yeah. I can talk about it endlessly. Brilliant. I, th I honestly feel like we could. But, uh, you know, I have a family and <laughs> I have to go talk to them about Star Wars instead. So. <laughs> Great. Is your daughter a Star Wars fan? She is. She's only seen the first three, as in, you know, four, five, six. And uh, she absolutely loves it. I got, um, oh, gave her um, Ralph McQuarrie, original, not original, but you know, print for her room on Friday. And she's just, you know, beside herself with excitement. Oh, wow. And, oh, um, that's really good to hear. Yeah, she's, good for, she's a big fan. She is very concerned about the um, lack of women in the in the first one, certainly. And it is very excited about watching Ray's story, but can't because they're 12s and she's eight and she's just not ready yet. So if she's not ready for Han Solo to die, I was not oh, ready God. for that. So. <laughs> I don't know if you're ever ready for that. <laughs> Thank you very much to Rebecca Harrison for talking to me. And I hope you enjoyed that. If you are a Star Wars fan, which I'm sure you are if you're listening to this, then don't forget we do have a fair few episodes in the archive all about Star Wars, including Jonas, who plays Chewbacca. We have uh, the Stormtrooper, who banged his head. We have Morton Bay, who did some research showing that uh, people were wrong about The Last Jedi. And uh, well, I'm sure there's other ones in there. But we'll be back very soon with an episode on Wandering Earth, which you can see on Netflix. And then I think we're going to do something called 33 AD Assassin or something. Ty picked it out. Looks an odd one. And thank you very much for listening.
The Cosmic Shed. Science fact. Science fiction. And everything in between. This podcast is brought to you by the Stimulus Network.